When you give a child a paintbrush for the first time, prepare to be amazed. And he looked up at me with these cloudy eyes and a big smile on his face. And he said, I paint the darkness. The darkness is very beautiful. There are many colored lights in the darkness. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, you'll be inspired by my talented niece, Nicolina. She's an artist who travels the world to bring the tools of public art, paint, brushes, and a lot of enthusiasm to neighborhoods all over the world. And we'll meet someone who can describe the view from the top of the Brooklyn Bridge. You look below you and you're standing on a a narrow little platform of metal or stone, and yet you are intensely and electrically connected to the city. Moses Gates finds beauty in sewer mains, catacombs, and on the other side of do-not-enter signs all around the world. I love climbing bridges. I would love it if my grandmother were able to climb bridges also. Urban explorers, public art, and more in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. I really admire my niece, Nicolina. She's been making public art in New York City now for more than 10 years. Her infectious enthusiasm has been getting people, young and old, all around the world to add color and a little heart into their neighborhoods. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Nicolina shares her passion for public art with us. I expect she just might brighten up your world, too. And today we'll also meet Moses Gates. He's an urban planner and licensed tour guide in New York City. But after hours, Moses explores the sides of cities that don't make it into the guidebooks, like subway tunnels, abandoned buildings, the tops of suspension bridges, and even the catacombs and sewer mains under Paris and Rome. A little later in the hour, Moses reveals the hidden worlds that urban explorers occupy. Let's start by checking in with listeners at 877-333-7425. People looking for a little help getting started with their travel plans. Kristen's calling in from Dublin, Ohio. Hi, Kristen. Hi, how are you, Rick? Doing good. We got any travel plans cooking? I'm thinking of Europe next summer, and I'm not quite sure where I want to go. What are you thinking about? Like the Russia, Tallinn, around that area, or southern Italy. I've been to Rome before. I've not been much south of Rome. Or Paris that I've been to but haven't seen everything in Paris, and I want to see some of the things that I've seen again. You're talking about summertime or off-season? I'm flexible, but if I went like the St. Petersburg I would go probably July. um, I was going to say, if you go up to the Baltic area up in the north of Europe, you'd want to go in the middle of summer if you could. That's when it's most lively and the days are long. Yeah, and if I were going to go to to Italy, I'd probably go May, late September, early October, something like that, where it would be a little cooler. And those are the best times to go there, yeah. St. Petersburg, you mentioned in Russia, is very complicated, not very complicated, but you've got to get a visa and it costs you a couple hundred dollars and you have to go through a lot of hoops. On the other hand... Tallinn, which is just a two-hour boat ride from Helsinki, is quite easy to visit, the capital of Estonia. So pairing Helsinki and Tallinn is a great idea. You could put that in with uh, Stockholm, and you got yourself quite a a beautiful 10 days in that part of Europe. Um, You could go back to Paris for the rest of your life, and there's plenty of side trips from Paris that would be exciting. I think a lot of people underestimate how long you could spend in the Chateau country, just a couple hours south of Paris. And then uh, once you've been to Rome, you know that Italy gets more intense and more exciting as you head farther south. And if you like Italy as far south as Rome, you might want to go down to Naples. Um, It's funny, when I'm planning tour itineraries and so on, we can spend more nights in one spot just outside of Naples in Sorrento than almost any other place because from Sorrento, you could spend five nights in Sorrento and on four successive days do four completely different things. You could explore in Naples, you could go out to Capri, you could do the Amalfi Coast with the ancient Greek site at Paestum. And you could also just enjoy going up to Pompeii and Mount Vesuvius. So you have plenty of options. Uh, Yeah, it sounds like it. I just, yeah, I think you're right. You can always grab a couple days in Paris. You know, I like to leave Paris for a winter getaway. I just think a a one-week winter break in Paris makes so much sense. You get inexpensive flights, you settle into one nice hotel, and and just uh, pretend you live there. That definitely sounds like a plan. (laughs) That's a plan. You can focus your preparation, read books on it. There's all sorts of great books that give you an intimate appreciation of Paris that the typical sightseer doesn't uh, take advantage of. So I'd highly recommend that. Hey, well, have a good time on your trip or in your travel planning, Kristen. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye-bye. Kathy's calling in from Oxford, Ohio. Hi, Kathy. Hello, Rick. I'm so excited to be on your show. Oh, good. Well, it's nice to have you on. And uh, what are you thinking about in the way of traveling? Well, I'm really excited to ask you this question because I've been planning this trip for a year or two, and we want to go from Cornwall 
to the highlands, and I wanted to ask you if that's too much in one itinerary, or do you think it can be done? Well, it can be done. I mean, that's just one one hour flight if you wanted to fly it, but the question is, how much time do you have? Two weeks. Two weeks, and what you're talking about is going from the south of England to the north of Scotland, right? Right. I thought Brit Rail Passes might work. Yeah, I think Brit Rail Pass is a great idea for a tour that stretches that far, because you can just hop on and hop off where you like. And from London, in a couple of hours, you're down to Cornwall. So you can do that. If you have two weeks in England, what I would do is remember that London is a pretty brutal place to get over jet lag. I would fly into London, but then head over to Bath. Bath is a very genteel town, very charming place, and, and get your bearings in Bath. And then from there, you could take a train going south and check out the Cornwall of your dreams. And then you'd uh, work your way sort of up north. You'd probably want to go, you know, Bath and the Cotswold Villages and York are big stops. You could visit uh, Edinburgh, which is one of the most exciting cities in all of Europe. And from Edinburgh, you would want to uh, explore further north. That's where your transportation gets a little more sparse. And you might consider renting a car up there or even taking a a tour of some sort for the highlands of Scotland because... uh, a very sparse population, but also very you know, richly rewarding as far as staying in B&Bs and going to the little pubs and, and meeting people that just want to sit down and, and, and share a beer with you and tell stories. Yeah, that's great. We, we're kind of shying away from renting a car. We're not too comfortable yeah. driving on the wrong side of the road. Well, but. you know, in Scotland, uh, you can go where you can't go by train, you can go by bus. And as a matter of fact, they've got such an ethic for public transportation that if there's not enough people to even to merit a bus ride, you can literally ride with the postman for the cost of a oh, bus really? ticket. So you can get to <laughs> the most remote great. places in Scotland if you just have a little patience by either train or bus or postman. So, But you'll want to do some studying because uh, if you have two weeks, you know, there's, there's two months worth of stuff to see and you'll have to make some hard choices. But, right. uh, I already kind of know where I want to go according to books I've read. Well, that's good. <laughs> but I also thought I want to stay in bed and breakfast so as to get to know the people better and learn about the people. I absolutely love staying in B&Bs in Britain. Uh, The people who run B&Bs generally really do it because they enjoy meeting people. So you've got friends in every town that you stay in, and uh, that's a very charming and real way to experience I always say a a bed and breakfast gives you double the cultural intimacy for half the price of a hotel. And these days uh, they're very comfortable and they're very well organized, and there's plenty of sources where you can find the best values on B&Bs. Well, I'll check that out for sure. And all of them have email, so you can just um, email back and forth and make sure you like the price and they've got a room for you. And then you know you got the the nights committed, and then you can fill in the blanks each day with all sorts of travel fun. All right, sounds great. Good luck in your adventure. Thanks, we're looking forward to uh, it. Thanks a lot for calling. Uh-huh, bye-bye. Bye now. 877-333-RICK, that's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. As we check in with your travel plans right now, on Travel with Rick Steves. Molly on Camino Island in Washington State has a concern. She says, we're four seniors going to London, and we usually use the tube and the bus system. But the new Oyster card has us totally confused, and uh, we think maybe it's not available for Americans. Can they legally use this card during their stay? Well, uh, Molly, the Oyster system in London's vast and wonderful uh, subway system is... Very confusing to tourists, but uh, once you kind of bite the bullet and and figure it out, it's the way to go around if you're going to be staying there for a while and on a budget. You can still buy tickets one at a time as you go, but the tickets have jumped way up in price, and the only economical way to use the subway system in London these days is with the Oyster card. It's available to locals as well as tourists. It doesn't matter. You just buy it. It costs you three pounds, and this becomes then your prepaid rechargeable card so that you can use the tube system and the buses. For more information, check out oystercard.com, where you pay for a prepaid and rechargeable card that you then get discounted rides because you have that card. And Shauna is calling in from Boca Raton, Florida. Hi, Shauna. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah. What are you thinking about? My husband and I are moving to London in January next year, and we're going to be traveling throughout Europe for four weeks. Um, We pretty much know where we want to go in Edinburgh, in Barcelona. But uh, for Paris and Italy is where we're struggling. We want to know if you know of anywhere in Paris that's not too popular you know, other than the tourist sites. And we want to travel in Italy for two weeks and then ending that trip in Sicily. 
Do you have any ideas? So you're going to London, is that right? Yes. And how much time do you have? Uh, roughly six weeks. Six weeks. And your priorities are Edinburgh, Barcelona, Paris, and Italy. Correct. Okay. Well, in Edinburgh, it's going to be like London. It's going to be cold and gray and drizzly. So you just got to, you know, wear good clothes and you don't let the weather keep you in. But Edinburgh is a wonderful city. It's a city that is great peak season or off season. It's great, you know, rain or shine. Barcelona, you're going to have good weather in the winter, most likely. Paris is a thriving cultural center any time of year. And where do you want to go in Italy? Well, my husband's family, they live in Sicily, but we want to enter into Rome and then travel for two weeks, ending in Sicily. We don't want to go too far north, but we're not sure how to route that trip down to Sicily. Should we go by train? Should we take the ferry? I took the ferry from Naples down to Palermo, and I really enjoyed it. And I arrived in Palermo, and then I spent a couple of days in Palermo, and then I picked up a car, and I drove around in my car. And you might want to finish your whole experience that way. Then from Palermo, you could turn in your car, and you could fly back to London. Okay. Remember, you can fly point-to-point in Europe for about $100, even less if you you know how to use the budget airlines. But just standard point-to-point tickets on the major carriers, figure $100 per leg of your journey. You can book that online or you can book it through a travel agent. But you could fly from London to Edinburgh. You could fly from Edinburgh to Barcelona, Barcelona to Paris, and Paris to Rome. And then you could explore Rome, take that boat to Palermo, pick up a rental car for a week and do Sicily, and then fly back to London. And that would cover everything you're looking for. And in Edinburgh, Barcelona, Paris, and Rome, those are all great cities if you just want to settle in for four or five days. You could do that in any place and feel really good. You know, in the summer and the winter, big cities are, are just fine. In uh, Sicily, that's where you're going to be thankful that you're traveling off-season because it's <laughs> l- less crowded and it's not going to be so darn hot. And with the mobility a car gives you in Sicily, you can stay in agriturismos, which are wonderful uh-huh. rustic farmhouses yeah, that where you can enjoy great home cooking in Sicily. You can tour incredible Greek antiquities. In Sicily, you just really feel a a proud culture that's rustic and a little bit offbeat. It's a wonderful complement to what people enjoy when they go to the rest of Italy. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. We're really excited. I'm excited about it, too. It sounds absolutely (laughs) great. Have a fun time. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Love your show. Thank you. Bye-bye. I want you to meet a couple of unconventional travelers next. In a bit, Moses Gates unveils the underground world of urban explorers. And next, the artist simply known as Nicolina, who just happens to be my niece, lights a spark for taking part in public art projects all over the world. By the way, happy 8th anniversary to our show. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. It's really inspiring to see someone set out into the world with gusto, to discover their passions, and to spread a little joy and color and fun among communities that could use a little boost. My niece, Nicolina, is one such person. She started a nonprofit artist collaborative called the Free Art Society in New York City. 
she did it to get guerrilla street art projects off the ground and to prove that making art together is a beautiful part of creating a community. Nicolina has traveled from Chiapas to China to Corcovado to inspire children and adults alike with her Hearts of the World workshops. That's where she gives each participant the outline of a heart, aorta and all. And then she encourages them to decorate it with images that reflect their dreams and their thoughts as well as what they love and value most. Nikki, vamos pintar. Vamos pintar. That's what we shouted to the children in the favelas in Rio de Janeiro when we did the Hearts of the World workshop there. We just walked around throughout the favelas and gathered the kids, and we were like the painted Pied Pipers. Now, now so just so people understand the context of this, you're uh, into decorating the streets and buildings wherever you go. You went down to Rio, and, yeah. you, and you were staying in the favela, which is a, a slum, basically. Yeah. Tell us about what it's like to live in a favela. Depending on the favela, it can be wonderful. They kind of get a, a bad rap, because of their history, but now they're most of them are very safe. And you know, the mo- the most alarming thing about them is you'll see police officers permeating the favela, and they have giant guns. So yeah. there's a heavy police presence, a lot of poor people, very dense population. Yeah. And do tourists generally go there, or do they? If they go to Rio, they'll sort of stay in the. Um, some tourists do. There are things called favela tours, and just to take a look at this. Uh huh. Tourists will come down. I think that the best way to go to the favela is just to walk around yourself, probably. You don't really need a tour, I would say. You're an artist, and you have your project, Hearts of the World, and this was this whole, uh, let's go paint, vamos pintar. First, what is Hearts of the World? Hearts of the World is an ongoing workshop that I'm doing with kids from around the world. Basically, I'm giving them an outline of a stylized anatomical heart, kind of like the ones that I often paint, and ask them to fill it in with whatever's in their heart, with their dreams and their passions and their fears and hopes for the future. They can paint it in with anything they want. And it's it's been really amazing. I've gone to many different countries with the project, and I always am surprised by the results. So you're in, in a poor neighborhood, a slum of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and you don't have a huge budget. You're there with this vision, this passion. You need a bunch of kids to fill in these anatomical hearts. You go into a neighborhood, and you just say, let's paint. Yep. And then what happened? It was really amazing. We sat on the, on the dirt ground and sat around in a circle, and we gave the kids all of the panels, and they went crazy. They loved painting. It was the first time any of them had ever done it. First they, they painted their panel, and then they would paint the back because they didn't want to stop, and then when the paper was completely covered, they painted themselves and then they painted each other, and then they ran around in the street chasing each other with paint. Now, had these kids painted before? No. This was the first time they had painted? Yeah. You know, they're so hungry for things like this, for painting or some kind of way to express themselves. So you did this the Hearts of the World project in Rio. Where else have you done it? In Beijing, China, and Guangzhou in the south of China, and Japan, and Mexico, Chile, and some parts in the U.S. So you're kind of like the Pied Piper of kids embracing life and filling their dreams on this little panel that they'll paint the anatomical heart, fill it with their their hopes and dreams and passions. Yeah, I mean, I really want to inspire kids and people in general to follow their their dreams and express themselves and learn about other people and have compassion for people of diverse cultures. And what have you learned when you look at the final works by all these kids who have filled in these outlines of an anatomical heart— are they different, or is there more similarities? Are there cultural we're, differences, class differences? We're all fundamentally the same. You've actually found that by the way kids fill in the hearts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all individual, and I think it, that's really beautiful and that we should express our individuality, but we all have the same emotions and the same kinds of dreams and, and hopes. So. Why an anatomical heart? And I mean, we know the Valentine's heart, you know. This looks like a right out of a medical book almost, that kind of a heart. Yeah, I mean, it's got a little twist to it, but, you know, the Valentine's heart has been used so much and seems like it's lost its meaning. What's an example of a particular child who filled in one of these hearts in a particularly faraway corner of this planet? Oh, one of my favorite moments was in Beijing, China. I did the workshop at an orphanage for blind children, and there was this nine-year-old kid who was born blind. You know, I I didn't know what to expect at all, 
with this workshop, and I ended up outlining the hearts with yarn so that they could feel the outlines. I didn't know if they could understand what color was or what form would look like through painting. He first asked for blue, and he painted his whole heart blue. And I asked him what he was painting, and he said, I'm painting the sky. And then he asked for yellow, and he painted the sun. And he asked for green, and he painted the forest. And I asked him what color he wanted next. And he asked for black. And he painted over everything with the black. And I asked him, what are you painting? And he looked up at me with these cloudy eyes and a big smile on his face. And he said, I paint the darkness. And I said, why? And he said, the darkness is very beautiful. There are many color lights in the darkness. I think that there's so much that we can learn from these kids. Kids have a special kind of wisdom that tends to be lost as we grow older. Wow. How old are you? 30. 30. You must think, why doesn't everybody do this? I mean, you could be just doing something very predictable in a very predictable corner of the United States, and instead you're going to small towns in China, you're going to the slums of Rio, you're going all over the world, you're going to Haiti coming up with this project. How do you do it? I have a little business in New York called Paint the Town. It's something that I do together with my friends. We, we paint windows and we paint signs and murals. And every year after Halloween, I work really, really hard um, painting kind of like a robot every day, especially after Thanksgiving, because there's a lot of work then. And I paint until I can't paint anymore, and then and I you get a one-way ticket somewhere. Yeah. God, well, don't you, in a way, you're inspiring people just to get up and make more out of their life. Life is such an amazing gift, and we all have this incredible opportunity to to use it to its fullest capacity, and that's what I like to inspire in people. Through your art. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with my niece, Nicolina. Nicolina's website is nicolinaart.com, and her art society is the Free Art Society, and their website is freeartsociety.org. Nikki, in your blog, you wrote that Rio is the most beautiful city. The jungle comes right up to the town. Describe Rio. Why did it steal your heart? Mm, Rio is amazing. Nature is everywhere, and the people are so joyous, I think, because they grow up with nature around them all the time. So trees, sunsets? There are massive mountains all around you. The sea is incredible, and it seems like a richer blue than anywhere I've ever seen it. The sunrises are the most beautiful I've seen in Rio. They're kind of pearlescent, and I can't even describe them. You have to see them. Now, you've got this other project that you, you dreamed up in Rio, Flutu Arte. Flutu Arte. This project I did with my friend Maxine Ninao. Uh, I wanted to paint a boat, and so I painted one, and, and some friends joined me. And then the next fisherman asked if we could paint his boat, too. And I could see that it was spreading like a happy virus, as art tends to do, because it makes people happy usually. These are funky fishermen's boats that are filling a harbor. Yeah, there are about 60 in the harbor. 60 boats. And you're painting the, they sort of got a plywood rooftop that... It's fiberglass. It's a fiberglass yeah, rooftop. it's kind of tricky to paint on. <laughs> that, that protects them from the sun yeah. and everything. And you're, you've got a beautiful surface then to paint on the top of each of these 60 boats. Yeah, we painted murals on the tops of... 58, we, we tried for 60, but there were a couple people who held out. <laughs> <laughs> These fishermen, their boats were pretty special to them, I would imagine. Yeah, we, we got to know the fishermen really well, and one of them told us that a fisherman's boat is like his wife. So it was very important for us to have the artist. We, we worked with 45 different artists from around the world and all around so Rio. So you're like tattooing his wife. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to, did, did he care Better what you put Better not mess in? up. <laughs> did, he, did he care what, what images you put on his boat's rooftop? Yeah, absolutely. You know, some fishermen who were, who cared less, but many of them were particular about what they wanted and had us paint a shark or a mermaid or their favorite soccer team, the Botafogo. We had a few Botafogo shields. So if you want to, if you've got some artistic wild image and you talk to the fisherman, he goes, I want my football teams. Shield. Yeah, you know, some of the artists were a little disappointed with that, but, <laughs> but we told them to go as crazy with it as they could. Nikki, you talked about a, a fisherman's boat is like his wife. You also had a boat that you painted that was dedicated to Marina. Tell us about that. Marina was this older woman who spent her whole life in the harbor. And for me, Fluto Arche is kind of about her. The point of the whole project was to see 
to what extent art can influence the community that owns it. And in the very beginning of the project, she was really skeptical of us, and she would she'd paddle around in her little rowboat and kind of glare at us, like, what are these so intruders? So she's looking at these Yankees, and they're painting up the boats. Yeah, and they're like, what are you doing to my harbor? I never gave you permission to do this. This is her and, terrain. Yeah, and one of the fishermen actually dedicated his painting to her and had the artist paint a black pearl in homage to Marina. And I had never... Why a black pearl? She was dark, and that was their nickname for her. The black pearl. The black pearl, yeah. So beautiful. So then what did Marina's attitude, uh, how did that impact it? So by the end of the project, first of all, she ended up loving us, which was so great to be accepted by her of all the others. She beamed when we asked her if she liked the boat, the black pearl, and then she asked us if we could paint a seahorse on her own boat. You won over Marina. Yeah, it was a great achievement. Now, how did you get your um, workforce to do this big project, painting 58 boats? Well, we were staying at a local hostel, and people would come through from all over the world. And so many times people came, and we kind of ended up taking over the hostel in a way because people would come through and meet us and and see the project we were doing, and they would change their travel plans to stay with us and help us paint boats. In order to help you paint boats on the the Flutu Arte. Because we had a lot of fun while we were doing it all, so we would always take the boats out and have barbecues on the sea, and we'd take them out to this abandoned jail at the mouth of the Guanabara Bay. And it was really a magical time. So travelers coming through Rio could stumble onto your project and help out. What What's the fun? I mean, you work all day painting in the sun. After dark, what goes on? Uh, how do you mix it up with the locals? Well, sometimes we'd have a barbecue on one of the boats. Sometimes we would go out dancing. Sometimes we would go exploring abandoned buildings in Rio. And this one particular night, we went to stay the night at this abandoned hotel on the mountain of Corcovado, which holds Christ the Redeemer. And we built a big fire there and sang songs and told stories. And then when the sun came up, I went up to Christ the Redeemer alone and walked all the way up the railroad tracks before it was open and walked through the turnstile without paying any fee and no one was there, not a tourist in sight. And I saw the sunrise in Corcovado and the Christ the Redeemer statue. And that was another magical moment. People spend a fortune to have half the magic of that. Yeah. And you don't need money to, to get the magic, that's for sure. How long were you in Brazil? I was there for five months. Did you pick up much of the language? I did pick up some. I learned most of everything that I know from the fishermen. From the fishermen? What, yeah. What's a key word we should all know when we go to Brazil? Shojibola. Shojibola. It's slang for awesome, yeah. And you can get a long way with that word. Awesome, yeah. Shojibola. <laughs> Is that right? Shojibola, yeah. It's a it's a football soccer term. There's big times coming up for Rio. In 2014, it's the World Cup. In 2016, it's the Olympics. And you've painted 58 boats right there. <laughs> if people want to see the boats, where do they go? Uh, they go down to the historical neighborhood of Urca. And that is nestled right between Corcovado and Pau de Azucar, the Sugarloaf Mountain. It's very close to the Sugarloaf Mountain. Because you can see the, the Christ statue from there. Yeah. And if people don't have an uh, airplane ticket all the way to Brazil, where can they see it on, online? Uh, they can see it at flutuarte.com. F-L-U-T-U-A-R-T-E.com. You can see all the boats. You can see all the boats from... 58 boats. Yeah, the, the website is set up as sort of an aerial view of the harbor. Nicolina is inspiring us to make art a part of our lives right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She organizes artist collaborations under the Free Art Society in New York City in order to encourage public art. And Nikki has photos of the colorful works she's created around the world at nicolinaart.com. That's N-I-C-O-L-I-N-A art. You can also find links to our guests on each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Nikki, your organization that that you're a part of in New York, Free Art Society, what is that? Uh, We're a group of artists and musicians and writers and adventurers, and we're all about volunteering our time to make art for the public and erasing the lines between the spectator and performer as much as possible. To have people engaged in it. Yeah, now, you're engaging in it. How do you get permission to paint on these public spaces, or do you just do it after dark? Uh, we do it both ways. Um, it's good to get permission, but if it's a, a kind of public space, then we just go for it at night. 
So if you want to do a big thing at night, you have to be pretty quick. Yeah. Tell me about that. Call that flash art. Flash art. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. Um, well, we've done some projects with a lot of people, I think the most being about 60. And we've made a 400-foot mural on the sidewalk in the East Village in five minutes. In five minutes. So you have this all coordinated, and it's like a military operation. It was an art army, yeah. An art army. Now, if you're painting rooftops in uh, in Rio of boats, or you painted a funicular train car in Chile, mm-hmm. where do you get the paint, and, and what kind of paint do you use, and what concerns do you have there? If I can, I bring the paint with me. For Hearts of the World, I always bring the paint with me because it doesn't take up a bunch of space, because you never know if you're going to be able to find it in a foreign place. But for big projects, I'll usually buy house paint. And when it comes to sleeping and just providing for yourself, uh, you're staying in with people, you're crashing and like couch surfing, Airbnb, hostels, what do you generally do? I absolutely love couch surfing. I, I would pick that over any other way to stay somewhere. Anyone who's going to offer you their couch for free is probably an awesome person. And you can do this all over the world. You can do it all over the world. You just go to the website. Mm-hmm, couchsurfing.org. And you're a fan of that. Big fan. So you could go to, you're going to Haiti. Yeah. Shortly. Do you buy a one-way ticket or a round-trip ticket? Uh, I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants, but I'll buy a ticket to Haiti and then to Rio. I might also go to Trinidad, and if I do that, then I will probably go right before Haiti. And what is your daily budget when you go on an adventure like this? Uh, I should think more about that, but I just try not to spend money. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you just try not to spend money. Yeah. You meet people, you sleep on couches, you'll paint for your dinner. Yeah, and then when I run out of money, I'm going back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can hardly wait to hear about more of your adventures, and congratulations on brightening up the world. Thank you. Brightening up the world brightens up my own heart, so I'm so happy to do it. It's the spirit of an artist with a travel bug. Yeah. With a sure. wanderlust. Enjoy your next trip. Thank you so much. Sojibola. Sojibola. Thanks, Nikki. Why don't we take a little piece of summer sky, hang it on a tree? For that's a way to start to make a pretty world for you and for me. And for the summer final Much of the street art in New York and other cities shows up in some of the most unlikely places. Up next, Moses Gates tells us about the appeal of going out of bounds, going off limits, to explore what he calls hidden cities, where urban explorers do not fear to tread. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Shojibola. Shojibola. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you. (laughs) Do you ever wish you could fly just so you could admire the view from the top of a bridge? Moses Gates is the kind of person who makes the effort to actually explore the places most of us can only imagine from a safe distance. He knows the adrenaline rush of seeing the Manhattan skyline from the top of the Brooklyn Bridge in the middle of the night. And when he goes to Europe, the sewer mains and abandoned quarries under the streets of cities like Paris, Rome, and Odessa, that's at the top of his sightseeing list. Or maybe climbing Notre Dame Cathedral from the outside and giving in to the temptation to ring the tower bell. By day, Moses is a licensed tour guide in New York City. He's chronicled his many global adventures as part of a community of urban explorers in his page-turner of a book called Hidden Cities. Moses, glad you could join us today on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Moses, your book, Hidden Cities, is just a page-turner because I've been going to a lot of these places all my life, and you uncover dimensions of these cities that I never even considered. Tell us just, uh, for people who are new to this, what is urban exploring? So urban exploring is really just seeing the city on your own terms. We all have our own interests, and travelers love cities. Uh, Many travelers love cities. I love big cities. And when you start to explore, you usually you walk the streets, you talk to people, you go to museums, and you get a healthy sense of curiosity about the city. I think everybody knows that feeling of thinking what's around the corner, what's behind that door, what's underneath the hole in the ground maybe. And urban exploration is just going a little bit further to find out the answers to those questions. 
I don't know anybody who's been to a city who hasn't left thinking they can't see more. <laughs> yeah, and, but when you think you know, of more, you're talking climb to the top of a, of a bridge over the Hudson River in New York, right? I mean, share with us the rush of climbing to the very top of a bridge in New York City, for instance. Climbing bridges is one of my favorite things to do in New York and really anywhere in the world. It's a chance to interact on a really personal level with something that's so iconic that has such a history, such a such a presence in New York City. You know, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, the Queensboro Bridge, uh, the Williamsburg Bridge. These are things that you see all the time. You pass every day. And you think, you know, you have a relationship with it. And getting to get up close and personal is really neat. And specific climbing a bridge is really interesting because you get a unique vantage point. You have two different separations from the city. You have the effect of being on an observation deck, of being high above the city. And, you know, the Empire State Building gets 2 million visitors a year. You don't have to explain the appeal of an observation deck to people. And then you also have the sense of a horizontal separation where it's that same sense of, say, looking at Manhattan from across the East River in Williamsburg or in Long Island City. And you have both of those at once. And it's a really unique perspective and and really cool. And especially if you're kind of all alone, you're on top of a bridge, you're extremely tenuously connected to the city. You're at the top of this narrow spire that's connected only by a, a narrow span to the shore. You have more room around you than anybody else in New York City, more than somebody in a Fifth Avenue penthouse, more than somebody wandering in Central Park. You just have this vastness of space. There's an amazing feeling of removal and connection at the same time. You look below you and you're standing on a, a narrow little platform of metal or stone, and yet you are intensely and electrically connected to the city. Once you've experienced it, you want to go back. So you are alone on top of a bridge. You generally do that at night after dark? Yes. And uh, you're not supposed to go up there, but you're able to just climb over the barrier and then you hike up the... How, how is it that you can physically climb to the top of one of these bridges? So it's not for everybody. I want to stress that. It's for people who are comfortable with heights, who are comfortable with climbing, and who don't mind possibly getting arrested. I don't want to make this seem cavalier or casual. I want to stress that in urban exploration, we take risks. And taking risk is a luxury, and not everybody has that luxury. Now, you mentioned three or four bridges, each of them not open to the public, and each of them actually open to urban adventurers who want to jump the barrier and climb up. Is that right? I would think they could just more effectively close it off so you physically couldn't get up there. Well, that's easier said than done. It's not easy to scale many of these bridges. It is something for folks with a decent amount of athleticism and, like I said, a decent amount of risk averseness. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Moses Gates. He writes a book called Hidden Cities, taking us really all over the world on his adventures. Moses, who are these urban explorers? How would you describe them, and is there sort of a special camaraderie among you? I'd say there's a little bit of a camaraderie, but urban explorers really are diverse. I want to say there's men, there's women, there's young folks, there's old folks, there's people from all over the world. And the really defining threat is that we just don't let, we're just really motivated to go where we want to go and see what we want to see and kind of willing to go that extra mile. It's really ignoring do not enter signs and then being willing to pay the consequences. You, you have sort of a, a greater ethic that says, no, you can't say we can't do this, we're going to do it. But you do risk getting arrested. That's true. That's that's the gist of it. I will say we all ignore rules that we think are dumb. You talk about in your book three kinds of abandonment. I thought that was very interesting. When you think of American, well, cities in general, these are we're talking big cities, review the three kinds of abandonment. So there's three different kinds of abandonment in especially North American cities, and it really depends on the economic vitality of the city. In a city like New York, abandonment is actually kind of rare which is why the things that are abandoned in New York often are very popular. You look at a place like 5 Beekman Street and they're throwing events and things like that in there. In an economically powerful city, things don't become abandoned for long because there's money to be made by rehabbing them. So generally that's by, a transitional yeah. phase. They're going to tear it's down a, the building, but right now you've got a chance to go in there and explore. Exactly. Now talk about the a deader city like Detroit or Buffalo or something like this. 
So in a Detroit or a Buffalo or some of those old industrial cities that have experienced disinvestment and depopulation, there's more abandonment than you know what to do with in general. And it's simply a function of population decline. And in these places, it's pretty easy to go and check out, you know, abandoned buildings or factories or hospitals or things like that because there's no economic value to most of them in a city that's still being depopulated and still has a great deal of disinvestment. And then there's something also in between, which is cities that are kind of on the upswing but not quite New York or San Francisco or a place with hugely strong property values. And there people are warehousing these a lot of times. And those are the toughest cities actually because a lot of times the abandonments are heavily sealed to protect that potential investment. They don't want people going in, taking metal pipes or trashing the place or doing anything like that. Now, my, my niece is a street artist in New York. Her name is Nicolina, and she has climbed some of these bridges you're talking about. I know Nicolina. You know Nicolina, and she's an indeed. amazing spirit. And reading your book, I just felt like I was talking to my niece, and it is really, it's really a bunch of adventurous young souls that are, are really willing to embrace life uh, and, and also deal with the consequences. And you write about the majesty of decay and the tenderness of rust and the the joy of trespassing. Talk about the majesty of decay and the tenderness of rust. Well, a lot of urban explorers start this hobby because they find a certain aesthetic in abandonments and abandoned buildings. And it's something that I don't disparage. I think that it, it can be interesting, but it's something that many people feel becomes fetishized. And you start to see websites with heavy use of phrases like the tenderness of decay and things like that. <laughs> And it's something that I think is interesting, but I think has to be done respectfully. And you have to realize that these cities, no matter where in the world and no matter what challenges they face, are people's homes. And people are invested in their cities and people generally love their hometown and want to see it improved and want to see it become vital. And to kind of fetishize the decay and the abandonment and things like that doesn't always come off respectfully. You don't have much respect for a do-not-enter sign, but what ethics and, and what limits do you have? When it, can you go too far when it comes to respecting property or risking your personal safety? How do you measure that? I think every urban explorer, and I want to stress this, every urban explorer follows their own personal set of ethics. Um, we are all people who ignore rules that we think are dumb, and therefore sometimes you have attempts to kind of make a code of ethics among urban explorers, which ends up being silly because then each particular urban explorer does the same thing they do with the law, which is they ignore the parts they think are dumb. Hmm. So I would say that most urban explorers generally are very, I want to say, ethical folks. Um, you know, we're not trying to do anything bad. We're appreciative of the urban environment. We're appreciative of our surroundings. And we really are trying to bring that appreciation to both ourselves and a larger audience. And I think that the folks who are ethically challenged, in a way, are the people who keep these amazing views and amazing pieces of history under wraps just huh. for, you know, themselves or whoever they yeah. happen to know. I think public access is a very ethical thing. And I think the more public access, especially to municipal property, especially to hmm. city-owned public infrastructure, is ethical and important. And I think that it's best if it's done in a way that's safe and accessible to the widest amount of people. I mean, I love climbing bridges. I would love it if my grandmother were able to climb bridges also. <laughs> you urban explorers might be called the ACLU of, of open access for people in, in big cities. I would not dispute that. Moses Gates is our guide to the heights and the underworld of urban exploration right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His book, Hidden Cities, is a memoir of his unconventional travels. And the website mosesgates.com has more about the book and links to Moses' blog entries about his latest exploits. Moses, let's talk about Paris. I, I've just long been fascinated with underground Paris. They say that, uh, you know, if you stretched all the sewers in Paris out in a straight line, they'd go all the way to Istanbul. You've got that huge underground dimension of Paris. Tell me uh, the joys you've had as an urban adventurer in Paris. The first time I went in the catacombs, it was the biggest paradigm shift of my entire life. I could not imagine that I was actually going to do that, that this place actually existed, that I was actually 
going to slide down this muddy embankment, walk through some abandoned train tracks, and quite literally crawl through a hole in the ground into this insane shadow world under Paris. I thought it was just this incredible pushing of my personal envelope. Now when I'm in Paris, going to the catacombs is the least big deal in the world. <laughs> it's it's just part of my standard itinerary, like going to, walking along the Seine and going to see the Louvre. So Paris is, in terms of the underground, the most amazing city I have ever been to, and I will never get tired of it. You have a magnificent sewer system that was built in the 1800s that goes all underneath Paris, and you can walk through the large drains pretty easily, generally speaking. And then you also have the catacombs, and the catacombs are a series of old limestone and gypsum quarries, some of which date back to ancient Rome. What had happened was they were built on the outskirts of Paris when Paris was a smaller city. The city expands. They start to develop over all of these old quarries, and it's a problem. You build a house. The house falls in an old abandoned limestone quarry. It's no good. Hmm. So back – and this is how old the catacombs are – back during the – reign of Louis XVI in the mid to late 1700s, 1770s, I believe, they commissioned an agency called the Inspection Générale Catières. My French accent is horrible. I apologize. And they went around inspecting and stabilizing all of these old quarries. And the result is a comprehensive network. If you look at the map, it looks like a Dungeons and Dragons module. And the cataphiles, who are the people who like to explore the catacombs, have continually updated and made their own maps. <laughs> Just so our, our listeners understand, uh, any tourist can go to the, quote, catacombs of Paris. And a couple hundred years ago, they decided the cemeteries in the city were a waste of land and not hygienic, so they unearthed all the cemeteries, and they respectfully stacked the bones under the streets in these old quarry uh, tunnels that uh, Moses is describing. And today, you can go down and see literally millions of skeletons and bones and skulls as you walk under the permissible catacombs is that your entry point, and then you just jump over a, a bunch of uh, bones and find yourself in the more unvisited territory? Or how do you bridge the legal part of the catacombs with the, the wide open terrain? So the legal part of the catacombs is about, I believe, a little under a mile in length. The catacombs themselves are about 200 miles in length. And when you have a network that big and you have the amount of people in Paris who like to explore it, you find ways in. Um, let's just put it like that. People team up down there. You talk about a, a subterranean Times Square. You talk about spending the night underground. So the Times Square of the catacombs is a term I completely made up. It is not, if you ask a cataphile about it, they won't know what you're talking about. But there is an area in the catacombs that is about a 20 or 30 minute walk from the most used entrance. That is this amazing place that's kind of the nerve center of the catacombs. It has several different rooms with astounding works of art that cover the entire caverns. We're talking sculptures, paintings. And in addition to that, it's also where a lot of people will meet up. You'll say, meet me in, one of the rooms is called La Plage. So you'll say, meet me in La Plage at 8 o'clock. And then you will go in a hole in the ground and wind your way through some tunnels and come around a bend. And you'll see this cavern covered in art with a bunch of French kids partying. Or something like that. That's a fairly common scene in the catacombs. And do you carry a flashlight or do you wear a head torch or, or what do you do? So if you're going in the catacombs, not just the catacombs, if you're going anywhere underground caving without natural light sources, mm-hmm. you should always take three light sources. So yes, I have a flashlight, a backup flashlight, and a backup backup flashlight. If you run out of light in the catacombs, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> Tell us about sleeping, spending the night underground in Paris. So sleeping in the catacombs is one of my favorite things to do. It's a great sleep because there's no light and no sound. You're dead to the world. What you have to do, though, is you have to bring a hammock. Most of the floor of the catacombs is rock, and if you try to sleep on it, even if you're in a sleeping bag, it'll feel like Harry Potter is getting his soul sucked out by a dementor. (laughs) It's just horrible. But if you manage to stay off of that, if you can sling a hammock, It's great. It's no light, no sound, very meditative. It's a little cold. The catacombs are constant 55 degrees with about Mm. 98% humidity. But it's, you know, if you have a good sleeping bag, it's not a problem. And it's one of the best sleeps you'll have of your life. Cataphiles have strung up a lot of hammock hooks. 
You know, I, you can't help but think of movies about Charles Dickens, London and stuff, where you'd have all these scary, desperate, mean people with knives that roam around down there. Do you feel comfortable just from a personal safety point of view when you're underground in these cities? I do personally. I've never run into a problem underground. I've never run into a problem in an abandoned building. I've never run into a problem with anyone I've met in any of these places. And I have met several people. Mm -hmm. I've met people in the catacombs. I've met people in the tunnels under New York. I've met people in abandoned buildings all over the world. And I've, I've never felt threatened. If you are going to mug someone or want to do harm to someone, you're going to hang out in a place where you think people are going to go. And that place is not going to be a tunnel <laughs> underneath in the ground or an abandoned building or something like that. All right. Well, um, good luck and uh, keep an eye open for my, my niece, Nicolina, as she's climbing those bridges. I hope she's okay. And thank you for sharing an amazing slice of the world that even the, the most uh, enthusiastic traveler hardly ever considers. Once again, we've been talking with Moses Gates. His book is Hidden Cities, a memoir of urban exploration. Thanks, Moses. Take care. No problem. I'll keep an eye on Nicolina. Don't worry. <laughs> That's good. Better have some fun. You ain't gonna live forever. Before you're old and gray, still okay. Have your little fun, son. Have your little fun. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for studio help today. There's more online at ricksteves.com, including audio from the show that you can download to your smartphone or MP3 player. Look for the Audio Europe link at ricksteves.com. And while you're there, click on the Radio tab to get more details about each week's show, including web links to our guests. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.